Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, I take the chance to catch up with an old and dear friend of mine, T.R. Harrington. T.R. is currently the co-program director at MOX, the mobile-only accelerator, an SOSV-backed accelerator based in Taipei, Taiwan. T.R. is one of very few foreign entrepreneurs to both build and sell a company inside China. His company was Darwin Marketing, and he spent 13 years building it, and we discussed the ups and downs and learnings from that journey. We also talk about his work helping brands think through their customer experience and the shift from key opinion leaders to key opinion customers and the importance for brands to prioritize improvements as a strategy. We then chat about what Mox is and does and why they and SOSV in general are so active and enthusiastic about the Southeast Asian region as a great place to look for growth both for brands and for startups. We end with an interesting look at whether Yahoo really lost or not when they went to Asia. Enjoy. We had clients come in and be like, I want my website to be global and look like this. And I'm like, then you won't sell anything. Because in China, you know, like clean means empty, right? And busy means there's a lot of product and I got something to look at. It's culturally, it's a big shift, right? And I'm not saying every brand has to follow that. Certainly luxury brands. I think for the most part, physical retail stores look the same in China as they do in most parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the websites, you will definitely see. And if, particularly if you go to the non-branded websites where people are reselling or selling their products, you will see it's very, very different than the way it's presented in the West. And you know what? It's done that way because it's working. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. TR, welcome to The Negotiation Podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Todd. Let's kick things off with you telling us about how you actually ended up all the way out in China. I would say my China story is a three-part uh, or a three-act play. Um, it started uh, about a year out of university, so back in the summer of 94. I had a roommate from college, another another uh, pasty white fellow like myself um, uh, who had moved to Beijing. And fall of 93, couldn't speak a word of uh, Mandarin before he left. And he had decided he wanted to go somewhere and have a, a great adventure and a great challenge. And the summer of 94, I went to visit him in Beijing. And he was damn near fluent. Um, my roommate, uh, Greg Ray, uh, who I would have never gone to China um, had it not been for him being there. And, uh, you know, during that trip, I saw China went, was all bicycles. Uh, the only cars on the road were taxis as Beijing was trying to capture the Olympics. And we took trains from Beijing to 
Nanjing, uh, overnight trains, rickety trains. Uh, there's, you know, uh, not, not very comfortable things. And then fast forward, go back to visit at the end of the year 2000. I've been in Silicon Valley. Um, everything's starting to crash in Silicon Valley. And I'm going back to visit the same roommate as well as another friend uh, from college who has started a small juice bar, um, which uh, fast forward to today has become uh, a restaurant, uh, you know, I would say phenomenon, otherwise known as Element Fresh with uh, 30 plus uh, restaurants uh, all over uh, China. So now I've got my college roommate and another friend uh, from Boston who was neighbors with uh, my immediate college roommate uh, in Boston, Scott from Element Fresh. And there's this whole community of people who are building and creating things in China. And as Silicon Valley is kind of cooling off, I'm looking at China as a place that's heating up uh, in terms of opportunity. And so uh, based on that trip in the end of 2000, I moved to China in 2001. Uh, to study Mandarin in a small city of 3 million in southwest China called Kunming in uh, Yunnan province. Uh, the city of Eternal Spring is a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, I spent about four and a half months uh, with private tutors learning my Mandarin and then decided to go to business school back in the U.S. So I moved to uh, Virginia to study at the University of Virginia business school. Uh, thankfully, I had some Chinese classmates uh, there, so I could continue to practice my Mandarin a little bit. And um, in the fall, I went back in uh, 2003 uh, for an exchange at the Chinese European International Business School in Shanghai. Uh, I was actively looking for you know business opportunities at that time uh, in Shanghai. And finally, you know, uh, I decided to move to Shanghai full time uh, beginning of 2004. So, as I said, that was a slightly longer introduction about how I got to China, but you could see it happened in 94, in 2000, and then finally I moved there in uh, 2004, and I stayed there until the end of 2016. I'm interested to know more about how and where you ended up in marketing. You built a marketing agency, built it up for 13 years, had an exit, something that very, very few foreigners have done in China. Tell us a little bit about that journey and talk to us a bit about some of the learnings, the most important and most impactful learnings that you acquired along the way. That journey actually begins back in Silicon Valley. And um, I think I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, I had been working in Bank of America, and I was doing some database marketing, and it was pretty boring, and I had figured out how to do my job in about an hour a day, and when I asked them for you know, something else to do, um, they basically told me I couldn't do what I was doing because if I left, they wouldn't be able to restructure it. So they wanted me to do my eight-hour job uh, the same way I was doing it before, rather than try to prove it. And I was lucky that that's kind of when Internet 1.0 and Netscape um, were starting to rise up uh, in 1996. And so I was really working with a lot of people who were building that first, um, you know, the first 1.0 of the Internet. A lot of those websites working for agencies and working, you know, for 
an early SaaS company, uh, you know, before the, the bus finally came in in 2000. But in all those roles, I was doing marketing. I was doing stuff that was very, went from not being able to measure everything to being able to measure from an impression through a click to a sale, right? Where you could close a loop and you could really do ROI um, in almost real time. Uh, back in. So that was kind of the perspective. When I moved to China, um, I had this uh, very strong vision and understanding of how data could uh, drive marketing. But it was something in China in 2004, it was still very much a brand-driven market. Um, but that was also, I would say, very fortunate timing because the end of 2004 was the introduction of Alipay and Taobao. Uh, the beginning of China's, I would say, C2C e-commerce, right? They had Dongdong, which was like an Amazon for books. Um, but this was the beginning of China's, I would say, consumer-driven you know, e-commerce. And the payment platform was essential because you needed critical number of users, the platform, and the payment to be all digitized. And then you have, you know, kind of like the, the basis for doing data-driven marketing. And that's how I started out. I figured China, being a low-trust society, it would be very difficult for me as a foreigner to sell anything, you know, despite whatever success that I had had previously in Silicon Valley, uh, because nobody knows that in China. And so the way that I approached or tried to uh, overcome that challenge was to sell the marketing on a performance basis, right, which is the essence of what uh, an affiliate network provides, right? Affiliate marketing, I build up a publisher base. Um, you publish your offers of electronics or clothing or whatever it is you want to sell. And I take a commission on each sale um, and I pass along the majority of the commission to the publisher where the link was. So to me, it was a lot easier to try to sell something where you didn't have to trust me. Um, I only got paid if I delivered you uh, that particular uh, performance. And so that's how I got in, uh, was using affiliate marketing. And my next move was to see how Baidu was, was rising and how Google had risen. So we looked to search to be also a key driver of how performance marketing was going to move in the future. And we quickly, I would say, moved the business in that direction. That was a key turning point um, because essentially two to three years into the affiliate business, when we had gotten it, you know, to say be one of the top three or four uh, networks in China, um, Alibaba changed its business model in terms of how they paid out. Um, you know, the affiliate networks, i.e. somebody who was in the middle like me, um, and they focused much more on paying out direct publishers, i.e. cutting us out. And so that business model went uh, down very, very quickly after that. Thankfully, by that point, we had transitioned to a more holistic performance uh, perspective, uh, more into search marketing, both on the paid and the organic SEO side. And anyway, yeah, that's, you know, I would say one was it would have been nearly impossible for me uh, as a foreigner to go in and try to gain the trust of Chinese. Chinese, it takes years to build that kind of reputation to 
Most Chinese, they see foreigners as somebody who's going to come in. They're going to try something for six months, <clears throat> maybe for a year or two, but they're not going to really be dedicated to the time and the resources that are required to be successful in China, right? Because most of the brands we worked with when they were coming in, you know, if I didn't think they had like a, at least like a two or three year horizon, I didn't think that they could be successful. You cannot expect immediate success in China. You are competing with some of, you know, the strongest, I mean, domestic competitors at any market you can enter uh, in the world. There's a lot of opportunity, but it's also, you know, quite a big challenge, I think, for, for brands coming in. And you need, to, you, need, you need to have those expectations and that type of commitment, I think, to be successful. Do brands enter China typically thinking that it's going to be a lot easier than it actually is? And what I mean is, do they perceive the landscape to be, let's say, more open than it is or more quiet than it is when it's actually a very noisy and dense environment? Do you have any idea how brands even end up on your doorstep knowing so little about what they're getting themselves into? I mean, let's put it this way. It depends on the brand's own awareness of what they know and what they don't know, right? If you walk into a new market and you think, well, you know, I've been so successful in this other market, I'm just going to, I know I'm going to be successful here. I trust myself more than I'm, and then I'm, then I'm really trying to pull from the market, you know, to see, to see what's out there. I definitely saw that. Like I saw the, 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 the second biggest, uh, affiliate market in Germany come into China and, and was like, well, this is the way we do it. Like, you don't understand. You can see, you know, this is not the way that they are going to do it with you, right? You can't come in here and say, I am going to impose my way on you, right? What you, what you have to understand or what you have, to, what you should try to understand is how do they think about these things and how do I build my product or my service into, you know, the way that they think about things, right? You know, we had clients come in and be like, I want my website to be global and look like this. And I'm like, then you won't sell anything. Because in China, you like clean means empty, right? And busy means there's a lot of product and I got something to look at. It's culturally, it's a big shift, right? And I'm not saying every brand has to follow that. Certainly luxury brands. I think for the most part, physical retail stores look the same in China as they do in most parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But if you go to the websites, you will definitely see. And if, particularly if you go to the non-branded websites where people are reselling or selling their products, you will see it's very, very different than the way it's presented in the West. And you know what? It's done that way because it's working, <laughs> not because it's wrong, mm -hmm. right? It's intentional. Right? Right. And that's the thing that's really important is to go in with as much of a, uh, I guess as a, you know, a naked eye as possible, right? Don't come in with preconceived notions. You hear a lot about, about stuff, you know, coming over the West, right? And especially about how big the market is and all this other stuff. And that's been there since Carl Crow, right? You know, billion customers. Everybody's excited about that. But what they don't tell you about the billion customers are, it's really hard, you know, because there's a lot of other people coming at them. And guess what? They're not all the same. They're definitely not all the same, right? China may be one big market, but 
every single province has its own cuisine, its own dialect, right? The people in, in Shenzhen are not that similar to the people in Beijing. They're just not, right? And if you think you've got like a one, you know, one to many market, then I think that's also a big, mis- a big misperception about how challenging it is to, to, to manage and to enter that market. Do you think that this misunderstanding of the China market landscape comes from a lack of cross-border expansion experience in general because they choose China as one of their first big steps that they take to go global? Or is it because China is just that many standard deviations from the norm on so many levels compared to the necessary adaptation effort it takes to slide into most other markets? Yeah, I mean, I think for what was interesting uh, for, 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 for me and working with a lot of brands, there were some brands that were there um, because they were already manufacturing there, mm. right? So they, they already had a presence, you know, physically. There were some brands who, you know, came to us digitally because they came there uh, from a retail perspective, like a company like Sephora, right? Or Luxottica, right? You know, they, they, they knew they had to do stuff in digital, but they also knew that they could they could bring in a formula, you know, like I said before, the luxury guys, the retail physical formula wasn't that different, right? But the digital side was, you know, I would say for both of them, they were quite open-minded, right? In terms of, yeah, we understand we're gonna have to present this differently if we're gonna sell online, right? They were open, you know, the understanding that while the physical retail present might be very standard, the approach to the market in China would have to be very non-standard right? because we can't, we're not, we're not on Facebook, we're not on Google, we're not on Amazon. We've got a completely different ecosystem, right? In terms of what, you know, the digital e-commerce, social media, et cetera, look like in China. And it is also something that is evolving probably faster than in most other markets around the world. You know, particularly on a mobile perspective, just by the sheer number of users on smartphones in China, far eclipses what anywhere else has in the world. So a new product rolled out, it can scale very, very, very quickly. And, you know, that's probably the part of the market that I find most interesting, um, you know, and fascinating from the standpoint of, you know, curiosity about where digital market is heading. But it is, it's very dynamic. To be successful in China, in digital, you have to be there 24, 7, 3, 6, 5. It moves very, very fast. You need to be very, very responsive. And basically, it needs to be treated, in my opinion, independent of most of the rest of the world. Because if you try to connect it back, like this was a big challenge for eBay versus Taobao. eBay's big advantage when Taobao entered the market was that they were a global platform, so they helped Chinese sellers reach out, right? As much, um, you know, as it enabled, you know, different buyers, you know, from the world for most of the beginning, eBay was a big value to the Chinese sellers, right? The biggest challenge was that for eBay as a global platform, if they wanted to make a technology change or feature change to the platform, since they were in Japan and Brazil and all these other markets, it took them nine months. And Taobao was able to roll out a new feature every six weeks. So in nine months, that's six different feature rollouts to one for eBay. 
the speed of the market in China is represented by that kind of story. That's how Taobao out-executed eBay and the e-commerce market in China. And if you come into this market, you need to be able to move at pace or you will not succeed. What's the most difficult thing about helping brands think through their customer experience, especially foreign brands that you were helping enter China? One of the most important things about managing the customer experience was understanding where in the experience they could manage the social, I would say, uh, chat communications. Um, mm. You know, I mean, WeChat as a as a customer service slash communication channel, um, you know, is a, is a fundamentally different uh, you know animal to anything that we have in the West. I mean, WhatsApp is also a chat platform, and yes, you can connect some media to it. WeChat started out as a chat platform and has become, you know, vertically integrated so that it is now, quote unquote, a super app, right? There is nothing that you cannot do through this platform. If people are spending four to six hours a day on this app, you better figure out how your customer experience is going to map into that particular app. You are not there to try to change the behavior. Trying to change people's behavior is expensive, and it usually does not work. Instead, you are trying to figure out what behaviors are there and how do you integrate what you are doing into those existing behaviors, right? So you can be considered and so you can engage with them where they are, not trying to pull them someplace else. So, you know, for most brands, I would say if you're entering China and you don't have a really, really clear strategy about how you are going to integrate WeChat into what you are doing, I think it will be very difficult to be successful. Do you think the fact that WeChat has dominated the social chat app landscape of China is what has enabled companies to really leverage it for customer service because in the west as we know we're inundated with a lot of ways to chat to each other or at entities you know facebook messenger whatsapp twitter the like there's a lot of different ways we can go about it but in china it really does boil down to wechat is that what has enabled that as a customer service uh technology and a customer experience experience for customers to prevail in China? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say I, I looked at this, you know, I looked at Facebook Messenger, you know, when I moved to the US. One of my business partners and I, Hank, which you know, uh, we're, we're very interested in messaging as a platform um, and, and how to take advantage of that. And uh, when, uh, when the PayPal, uh, you know, COO came in to take over Messenger at Facebook, I, I thought for sure they were heading down a path of integrating payment. And, you know, if you integrate payment, um, then suddenly you can, you can easily, um, you know, integrate a bunch of services on top, right? Um, like they could very much follow that super app formula. Mm-hmm. But until now, you know, even with Libra, whatever that ends up being, mm-hmm. 
they don't really have payment working on Facebook Messenger, one. And two, all most of those downloads were inorganic, i.e., you forced me to download the app so I could read a message from my friend on Facebook, not because I wanted another app, right? So I, I think the, you know, the cold start of that app was not really uh, smooth onboarding, uh, i.e. Facebook Messenger, and I don't think they ever delivered. You know, there was a lot of chat app applications built on top, right? These, you know, chat bots, uh, quote unquote, but without, you know, kind of integrating the payment, which I think is what WeChat, you know, that's what kind of what made WeChat as a platform as opposed to uh, a, a chat application take off. I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't think it's going to mm-hmm. scale. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's the big difference. You have to have the, the, the payment in there. If you have payment, you can do ride sharing, you can do ordering food, you can do whatever you want. It's all integrated. Um, and, and that becomes a really, then you could, then you could really start to take over uh, a larger share of people's time on phones. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure why the payment stuff has been that difficult, but it does. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious, right? Why, why, is it, why doesn't Amazon have a stronger payment platform? Doesn't make sense. I think that's a great term you used, uh, cold start, because this wasn't a typical uh, feature or product rollout in where we're going to give you some samplings, we're going to try something, uh, we're going to see what sticks, and then we're going to let ourselves be pulled into product development by letting the market kind of uh, show us where they want us to be. This was more of a case of we're going to take something that you currently enjoy, and then we're going to parlay that and cut that off and then create it as its own existing thing and now if you want access to something you've previously enjoyed you now have to download a brand new app yeah for sure i mean it wasn't i mean i didn't have a choice in this it wasn't like hey you know i've got these really cool things for you it's just like you could do a simple message and there's a lot of other alternatives for that so it didn't feel like you know there wasn't any value exchange in doing that is this something that couldn't happen in china have you seen uh the cold start methodology used uh, by any of the tech giants in China? I think, they, well, they definitely cold started people. Like, for instance, like, you know, like <laughs> Alibaba's like, you can't use that WeChat, right? We're going to have our own little... Um, the whole walled you know. gardens, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to allow you to search and no. purchase through Baidu? No way. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So they don't need to do that. They're bigger than Baidu right now. Nope. Their, their search engine and their advertising is mm, a significant multiple now versus Baidu. Baidu is falling. But, but yeah, they, they have Aliwal, right, for their internal communications. Because obviously you don't want your communications about business to be on somebody else's platform. That would be uh, – the, the risk of stepping over the line would not be small in China of going to say, oh, what are my competitors talking about on WeChat, right? Because I have all the WeChat data at Tencent. Right. I'm not saying Tencent would do that, but the, you know, the, uh, the temptation to do that would be high, right. If they're one of your competitors. So, you know, it's, it's definitely in Alibaba's interest to have that wall garden, at least with their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so they're, they're forced to use, right. Some of these products, which, you know, in their personal lives, they're using WeChat like every other person. Right. But when they're communicating, like in their, it's almost like their Slack channel right, internally at Alibaba, right, they're not using 
a third-party platform for that. No way, right? Because for them, that would be too sensitive. Are we seeing an appetite shift in the way Chinese consumers trust who is not just selling them, but talking to them and teaching them about new products in the emergence of the key opinion consumer versus the former leader of the pack, the KOL, the key opinion leader? Yeah, there's been multiple, I would say, movements that I've seen, you know, around that uh, from, uh, you know, a company called Wildfire um, by Benjamin Duval, uh, who is organizing uh, you know, consumers take, uh, go on missions, right? And Sina, uh, you know, another, um, you know, I would say through originally through ad- advocacy and now through pull past, like really how to, you know, do you pull information or get people who are real on the ground users uh, to sort of give you feedback and information and use that as a way to um, either, you know, gain insights, or, or, you know, or build positioning, you know, for your products and services. But people who start going around and calling themselves like, uh, like a key customer or, you know, or I, I, you're, you're going to be an influencer at that point. You may be a mini influencer rather than a celebrity, but as soon as you are taking the position that I am like a, you know, a, 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 a key customer, you to me, you're sort of putting on a at least an influencer hat of some sort. Like you're an opinion leader, right? Um, and very rarely is somebody going to do that without some uh, financial interest. Eventually, so right. It's it, to me, it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's a part. I mean, people. Like, let's put it this way: nobody in China thinks anybody's doing anything for free ever, ever, right? So it's not like they're going, oh, you're only doing this because you're getting paid. They know you're getting paid, right? They're not, they're not, I would say, so they will look at that with a, a, a quasi-skeptical eye. And then a lot of times what they'll do is they'll reach out to the people they know, which is what you're saying, is they'll go and start looking, has anybody else that I know said anything about this product? Who can I talk to? who's actually touched or used the product. I want the real deal. I don't want what they're trying to tell me. I want the real deal, which is kind of like with the, the old BBS in China was like this, the Bolton board, you know, people like, if you, if you didn't trust, <laughs> this is great. We did, a, huh. we did, a, we did e-commerce, uh, uh, like reviews. We had customers like walk through the whole e-commerce checkout process. And we were asking them, you know, questions, you know, as they were going through it. And we'd ask them uh, to, you know, they'd be looking at the reviews and then it'd be like, okay, you're going to, what do you, yeah, they put the, the product in, in the, in the, in the shopping cart, the Google show. And then, and then they would, you know, be like, okay, so you're ready to check out that. I'd be like, no, well, what are you doing now? She's like, well, I got to go to Baidu. Why? Well, I got to go to the BBS. Why do you got to go to the BBS? Because all the reviews on Alibaba are fake. I can't trust them. So I always go to the BBS to read the reviews. So it, it, that was a huge, like, wow moment for me, right? You know, in terms of, like, getting into the mind of the way they think. Everybody knows that there's a game going on in China, right? Everybody knows that there's a certain game around, around all sorts of reviews. So they are always going to find or look for something that will give them the real deal. 
right, that will be a counterweight against this very cultivated, uh, you know, image, right, or presentation, right? So right. that's that's one of the challenges in China. It's like you have to do that cultivating image too because if you don't have four and a half stars on your Alibaba store, even though everybody knows it's fake, then people won't buy from you either because you didn't do a good enough job of making yourself look good. So you didn't care. You have no respect. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? 100%. One of the things that you're very, very good at is helping brands prioritize their improvements. What does that mean and why is it necessary? Uh, I'll give you an example. So we worked with um, one of my smartest clients, you know, for a while and we were making um, continuous improvements over a period of about like, you know, nine months or so. And in nine months, you know, the conversations we're having was starting to uh, get really, really, really narrow in terms of, you know, what part of the potential consumer base or user base that we were impacting by making improvements. And what I what I, I, the way I explained it, um, you know, you know, to her at this time, I said, you know what, you know, we can focus on this and we can, you know, we can improve this and we can maybe even, you know, improve it by three X. But if we do that, because it's such a small portion of our market, it's going to have almost zero impact on our revenue or our bottom line. And it will take up this amount of resources to do it. So I think we should focus on coming up with ideas that are around the 60 or 80% and, you know, not go too deep, right? There's good optimization, but you can go too far and you can go too deep. And if you go too far and too deep, suddenly the amount of the impact that you're having, even if you make massive improvements, you know, net net is very small, right? So sometimes it's easy to get lost in going deeper and deeper, but I think you kind of like what we say with, uh, with the startups, right? You know, we need to come back to focusing on how do we drive the North side metric, the big one, not the super small things. So it's great to have ideas. It's good to run experiments. It's good to try to optimize, but you still need to prioritize around the things that are going to have the biggest impact. And I think sometimes, you know, if you, if you just optimize too long on a path without coming back to that 500 foot view, you, sometimes you may fall off quote unquote, your, you know, focusing on your North star metrics. Let's shift gears and talk about what you're doing now. You have joined my old company, the fund SOSV, and you are now running Mox out of Taipei. At a high level, talk to us about what Mox does, what it is, why it's in Taipei, and maybe tell us what is a good example of a startup profile that would excel in the Mox environment. Yeah, I joined I joined Mox in uh, July of 2019, and as you said. Um, like most of the rest of the SOSV family, um, and including yourself, uh, I originally, um, you know, or at least I started as a mentor, um, you know, through you and, uh, eventually, uh, who I work with, Oscar, um, you know, at, at China Accelerator was a mentor before and William, uh, who, you know, who I now work with across 
Chen Accelerator and Box um, on behalf of SOSV also was a mentor. And uh, my you know, co-director, Jenny, uh, was also a mentor. So we're all former mentors now uh, helping to run the program. And you know, Mox, uh, the mobile-only accelerator, is very much a mobile first um, you know, in terms of our uh, companies. And we have a, I would say, an, a, a, a strong, I would say, vision to continue to build the South Asia and the Southeast Asia ecosystem. We invest in companies uh, in India, Pakistan, Malaysia, Bangladesh, Singapore, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, etc. Uh, so, and we've also got investments in the United States and Europe as well. Uh, so it's a global uh, focus. Type of companies we're looking for um, usually fall into two different types of categories, um, but in general, I would say uh, are very consumer driven overall. The categories that we particularly look at are in either monetization and finance, in gaming, right, or in uh, the third one, finance gaming or e-commerce affiliates. And then the other side, we are looking at companies who have some sort of large consumer base. Um, it could be in entertainment, it could be in education, it could be in uh, communication, and we are trying to uh, help these companies either get to a business model on one side through pairing, or on the other side, we are working with them uh, to continue to try to scale their business, right? They have a monetization model. Now, how do they grow that up? The one side, the other side, they have a consumer uh, base of users. How do they start to monetize? And we work with them on a weekly basis to help them to structure uh, and prioritize experiments to figure out how they can improve that part of their business. So, yeah. And I'd say, yeah, the, 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 the case that we look at, company may have um, a very small number of users, maybe only like, you know, 40, 50,000 users, but they have a working uh, e-commerce model, say a food delivery business. Um, you know, after, you know, working with them over the last two to three months, uh, they uh, are starting to be much more disciplined in terms of how they are organizing and running their experiments. And they have been able to show, I would say, pretty strong growth rates uh, over the last six weeks, uh, growing week on week uh, over 50%. So that is a great case, not a typical case, right? That's not for everybody, right? But that is something that we can help with some companies who have an opportunity and they just need to have the kind of guidance, structure, and discipline layered on top so that they can create something that's repeatable and scalable. You and I have both been entrepreneurs, mentors, and now directors of elite accelerator programs. This has led both of us to have some very strong feelings around how founders should conduct themselves to not only succeed in an accelerator program environment, but also in building a successful company. What are some of the key behavioral traits you can point to that you look for in particular? Okay, so for the one thing, we've already given you money, 
we're already invested in you. We want you to be successful. If we're giving you advice, you know, try to think about why we're, we're giving you that advice. Don't, you know, I'm not saying you have to accept it. And I don't want you to just listen to what we tell you and say, I'm just going to do exactly that. But listen to why. Listen to what we are saying and listen to why we are saying what we are saying. Listen to the what and the why. Right? And after that, I just want you to take some action. You don't have to agree with me, but I just want to know that you are taking information in, making decisions, learning from your decisions. As long as I feel like that there's some discipline about how people are moving, then I feel like there's an opportunity really to work well together and to maximize the value, right? I think we've been fairly fortunate that, you know, since uh, the last two batches I've worked with, people are, are pretty responsive. They do the work. If we give them feedback, they, they make the updates. Uh, they try to incorporate it. Um, uh, and, if, and I think if people have that, uh, I would say that approach or that attitude when coming into uh, a program that is either a pre-accelerator or accelerator, you're there to learn, right? We're here to try to share. You're there to learn. You're, you know, you're investing in this, right? And we're investing in you. So let's try to, let's try to make that happen, right? When a brand or startup looks east, they see China as the big shiny object, which can inevitably blind them to the plethora of other opportunities markets in the Asia-Pacific region offer. SOSV, and in particular Mox, are not blinded. In fact, you're very active in the region, purposefully. Why are you so bullish on the Southeast Asian and Indian markets as the best region for mobile startups to achieve growth in? Sure. I mean, um, so I'd say... If you look at, say, the, the waves, right, or waves of the internet, like, you know, Internet 1.0, Silicon Valley, um, you know, at some level, uh, the, the next wave was a little bit later in Europe, but, you know, we had the Western wave we had, and China's had its wave, right? All these internet tech companies went from very small, like, you know, William Listing, Alibaba, uh, Baidu, and so forth, um, and now these guys being, you know, 60, 200, 300 billion dollar companies. The next big wave, you know, in my opinion, in terms of like, you know, these companies rising up is going to happen in Southeast Asia and South Asia, India, Pakistan, and all the rest of Southeast Asia. That's where I see the next big quote unquote unicorns are most likely to come from and they're starting, right? I think Vietnam with AHA Move and uh, Tomasic putting in 100 million. Essentially, they become one of the first uh, internet unicorns in Vietnam. Uh, Indonesia's already got, I think, three with uh, Tokopedia, Bukapak, um, and also Gojek, right? Um, and India, clearly, you see this, is, this has got to be one of the hottest places at the top um, where you've got the big internet giants from China, Tencent, Alibaba, um, you know, uh, the, 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 who else? The, I'm trying to think of the TikTok owner. I forget the name. Uh, Bike Dance, right? Uh, in there. And then on the other side, you got Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc. Right. All going in at the top. But strangely, or, or because it's so early, there hasn't been a lot of exits yet mm -hmm. in India. So the early stage, there's 
there's not, you know, there's not a lot of founders who are reinvesting yet. It doesn't have that layer that China now has, right? China now has tons of angel entrepreneurs, right? People who've gone and had big exits, right? Or the 10,000 millionaires that were created via the Alibaba IPO. Right, exactly, right? And he hasn't had it yet, right? So there are, there's just an unbelievable, like, talent pool that's not getting capital, right? And in and, and, and my opinion, right? Because it, that, that part of the market hasn't developed, right? And I saw this when I came to China in like 2004, like when I was going to fundraise in 2005 with guys who were from like the Sand Hill Road and they were putting in money in private equity rounds, you know, because it was easier to deploy money up there than it was to put in, you know, Series A or, or, or earlier rounds, right? The same thing has happened in India where, the, where a lot of capital is concentrated at the top. But the, the, the bottom has not yet had that kind of foundation built in. So I think in both markets, like in all around Southeast Asia, there's, there's great opportunity because that, you know, that, that part of the capital market has not developed yet, right? It's still pre that being developed, right? So anyway, I, I see tremendous growth and tremendous opportunity across the, across the region. What's your best piece of advice to startups or brands looking east, looking at Southeast Asia, India, or China? Um, there's, there's, there's more than one way to do it. Uh, so I think one company that's a very interesting case study to look at um, and is largely looked upon as a failure, um, um, except if you, you, you really think about how the story ends. All right, so the story starts, um, this company is an internet giant in the US, and they decide to enter Asia and Japan and China almost at around the same time. For whatever hubris they had, they decided they didn't need any friends to go into China because China was, you know, still early developing. And Japan, because it was, you know, a more developed market, they needed a strong partner. So um, the market, when they tried to enter China by themselves, they made a lot of acquisitions. They Frankenstein it together and it was a complete and utter mess, and it ended up become subsidized underneath Alibaba. In the other market, they let their partner, um, you know, Mayoshi's son at SoftBank, take Yahoo and make it a super huge, powerful brand uh, in Japan and drive tremendous shareholder value. And not only that, they also managed to take the crappy assets that they got from China and, you know, get Alibaba stock exchange for that. So why Yahoo failed terribly in terms of market entry into China, uh, I think SoftBank saved their butts um, and had them exchange their assets for Alibaba stock and also made them a lot of money in Japan. So I think the moral of the story is, don't think you know what you're doing by yourself. Um, you know, it's good to work with partners and people on the ground who've been there and done that. And when Yahoo took that strategy to Japan, uh, they were extremely successful. And when they thought they could enter the market by themselves in China, they pretty much, <laughs> they failed miserably, uh, to, to, to say it kindly. So uh, I definitely feel like there's, there's value from working with people who, you know, who are, who are on the ground in the market, who understand the market. Um, you don't want to go into any market cold, right? You want to go into market with people who've been there and done that, um, so you don't make silly mistakes. If you make mistakes, you make mistakes that are, you know, 
things that you are, mm. are a part of learning to get better. You mm. don't need to make the same mistakes that everybody made before. That's just, it's just dumb. Lose the battle, but not the war. Yes. Very, very good. Better. Tiara, my old friend, thanks very much for doing this. It has been a pleasure as always. It was great catching up with you. It's my pleasure. Great to speak with you, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.